Hello and welcome to the third season of Somerset Stories, the podcast which explores the lives of the people who live, work and create in Somerset. My name's Lewis Webb and each week I get to share the stories of some of the inspiring, creative and successful individuals and families that make this beautiful county their home. This season we'll also be showcasing some of the area's musical talent, with tracks from local artists being played in each podcast. Kicking us off for episode one is country music act Taney Lord and the Crooks. As ever, your comments, reviews and feedback are always appreciated. And if you'd like to send us a message, you can email hello at somersetstories.com. My guest for our first podcast of the season is author, coach, retreat leader and forgiveness enthusiast, Barbara J. Hunt. Her first book, Forgiveness Made Easy, is designed to chart a path towards living without resentment. In her coaching and retreat work, Barbara helps people transform their relationships and reap the mental and emotional benefits of forgiving others and ourselves. Barbara, welcome to Somerset Stories. Thank you very much. This is the first episode of our third season, so we're kind of getting into a bit of a groove. Are you someone who listens to a lot of podcasts? I do listen to podcasts, and in fact, I'm, I'm kind of stuck on one at the moment. I'm listening to a lot of Charles Eisenstein, and he has lots of very short sound bites, so they're like six minutes, and I really like the fact that they're very short, and then you can pause and, and think about what's being said. And uh, yeah, but I think it's something that's increasingly interesting just to have different people saying what they think and uh, being able to just tune into like such a wide range of interests. So yeah, it's great. And you've spoken on quite a few as well, haven't you? A few. I'm, I'm sort of getting started really just talking to anybody who'll have me about forgiveness and other things. Yeah. Since you've done a, a couple in the, in the past, what tips can you give me to make this interesting for for you um it's the engagement really between the two of us it's like going deep into the conversation even though you might have questions that you know you want to ask me there i think it's seeing what unfolds and where the common ground is that is the the interesting thing what what i don't know and what you don't know we're in the period of the year where new life in nature is is really present the blossom is out the bulbs are out are you someone who feels a sort of strong connection with the natural world around you? Yes, very much so, very much. And, and since I've, I, I moved down to Somerset probably about 21 years ago this summer, and I absolutely love where I live and I love nature. And I've even learned a little bit about foraging. So I, I connect with the land in that way. And I, I look at the nettles and the wild garlic and think, oh, soup, homemade soup. So, yeah, so I, I, it's, it's a great pleasure. And also having lived in the same place for such a long time, knowing what flowers come up when and in which order and how the seasons evolve and open. And in fact, um, when we went into lockdown at the beginning of last year, I decided I was going to take a photograph outside my window every morning just to watch the seasons change. And I haven't put it together yet, but um, we're nearly on a year. So I'm looking forward to doing that. Yeah, we're, we're coming up to the anniversary, aren't we? Mm-hmm. By the time this comes out, we will have we will have passed that, so we will be will be past a year. Yeah, right. Yeah. This episode is going to be going live the day before Easter, uh, and I know that you were raised in the the Catholic faith. So, do you remember uh, being taken to church on Easter Sunday? I do, I do. I, in fact, we um, we were a, a practicing Catholic family, and uh, Easter was always regarded as the the biggest festival, the most important festival even though obviously as children we preferred Christmas um, because they, they were better presents than the Easter eggs. Uh, <laughs> but with, with the mind of a, of a child, you have to suss out what's the best 
what's the best options for you? Uh, but always we were taught that the, the, the Easter was the biggest festival because of the, the message. And, and I do remember one of the traditions is to do the Stations of the Cross where you go through each of the different parts of the story of the crucifixion and resurrection of Christ. And so I, I, we were definitely um, encouraged to take that as, you know, we I think we, because there's not just, it's not just Easter Sunday, but you also, there's Ash Wednesday and all the different other sort of run-ups to, uh, to Easter ex itself. And, and um, Good Friday is a day of fasting and turning within and contemplation. And although we, I don't think we did that sort of very well as a family to begin with, um, I think there was a sense of something important was happening. There was some reverence that was needed at that point and uh, and then Easter Saturday was like a holding your breath and then Easter Sunday was the the celebration and and the Easter hats and lots of yellow and white yeah so yeah yeah and some chocolate as well and some yes we used to have my dad would usually do a, a treasure hunt so we could have to work for our Easter eggs we'd have to solve the clues and find them <laughs> Yeah. Did the the story resonate with you then? I don't know. I think I, as a very young child, being told those stories and seeing those pictures can be quite traumatizing. I think um, that actually the 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 message of love and forgiveness and and you know love your brother as yourself and all all the, the essence of it I think has sustained throughout my whole life, even though my understanding has evolved beyond the the dogma. Um, but it, I, I'm, I don't know. I, I think what you're taught when you're very young is probably beyond your comprehension to, to really understand the, I suppose the, the metaphor, if you like, of resurrection and, and eternal life and, and having been able to find my way towards a bigger picture view of life and the universe and everything that doesn't necessarily, it's not the same as that. But I think one of the things I always used to value with the Catholic tradition is that it has a sense of the miraculous, the mysterious, the unknowable, the miraculous magnificence of creation. And I, I do really love that, the idea that whatever it is that we think is going on probably isn't the thing. And that there are mysteries that we can't understand and may never understand. Along with that sense of mystery, I guess there's also a reverence and propriety that is you know very closely aligned with with the catholic faith and and one of the things that is assumed therefore about a lot of the families is that they are very conservative and not much room for you know emotional expression would that be an unfair assumption in your case i don't know it's it's interesting the way I understand it, it's through levels of development that, in fact, I was mentioning to you, Ken Wilber, the philosopher, the American, American philosopher, he talks about we have different stages of development. So it, you can easy, easily see it with your children, the terrible twos, and then they get, you know, seven-ish, and then through their later childhood and then their early teens, there's different stages of development that we go through. Um, but there are also states of awareness. So like, um, being awake, normal behavior, dreaming, or being in that kind of creative, sort of slightly zend out meditative state. And then there's the, the really advanced spiritual states where you identify as one being, there's, you know, that sense of the mystery. And, um, and I think 
my parents were able to communicate their understanding. My mum had a real sense of the mystery and she loved glorious voices and she was quite highly strung. And so I think there was a sense of um, the gloriousness of God. And, and one of the things that she used to say was this lovely little poem, which was um, the kiss of the sun for pardon, the song of the birds for mirth. One is nearer God's heart in the garden than anywhere else on earth. And that was, I think that was her sensibility about the sense of beauty of creation and that kind of thing. And, and, and maybe, I mean, maybe there was a certain conservatism. I went to a, a Catholic girls school. So everybody around me was thinking the same. I didn't ever come across any families who'd been divorced because almost all of our family members and all the people that I was connected with were married. Um, and so it was only when I went to university that I actually encountered families where their parents weren't together. So maybe from that perspective, there was a, a limited view because it was coming through the people that we knew who had very similar values that we did. Hmm. And as a, as a young adult, as a teenager, you also um, had to deal with your mother becoming increasingly unwell yeah. um, as well. Um, did you, did you find it uh, easy to sort of get in touch with the emotions that, that's, surrounded those events as well as the emotions of being a teenager? No. <laughs> I think the, the, the most striking thing really was about how I didn't feel. I didn't let myself feel my grief about it or my anguish about it. And I, I for a long time, I used to wear this little badge that said, je ne regrette rien, and real had a, a sense of nothing's going to get me. And I didn't cry for seven years. I had a real thing that I was, that was not going to let anything upset me. And I think that was my uh, coping mechanism for dealing with what was happening with my mum. And, and also it, it was sort of 15 was when it was started to really impact the family. I was 15. And, um, and I think it was not having any other resources to help deal with it because one of the things I did see in my family was that they were finding it hard to reconcile their religious beliefs and a belief in a loving God with what was going on with my mom. And so I was in that as well, that sort of inquiry. And my brother was at Westminster Cathedral Choir School. He was the head boy and head chorister there during his uh, beautiful voice years. So up until his voice broke. And uh, so that, so we were very embedded in, in the, the Catholic church and and my mom she even went to Lourdes to you know to hopefully get healing but that didn't work and you know so that so I find I think it must have been very hard for her and my dad who had a strong faith to somehow reconcile that her her illness with a loving God but also I think with the Catholic tradition there's a sense of offering up your suffering and I think that was what my mom did her attitude towards it was offering up her suffering for the greater good and, and mine was really just to shut down. And I, I think on the external side, I like looking like a, a good girl, you know, helping my parents. And, you know, and I even took a year off university to look after my mom um, in my 20s. Um, but there was still that sense of it shouldn't be happening and, and it's not fair because she was she was a very good woman. She, you know, would have helped anybody. And she taught catechism on Saturdays and she was, you know, a woman of faith. And she actually, funnily enough, she wanted to be a nun. 
Um, but uh, she, she, I think she applied and, and had a, some interviews and they didn't think it would be suitable for her ultimately. So, so I'm sure I kind of slightly muddle up the story of my mum with the story of the sound of music, you know, <laughs> kind of one story. <laughs> Mums of all, all kinds, I think, have uh, a love for the sound of music. And I think if, if yours wanted to be a nun, then there's a, a special yeah. uh, kind of attachment to it as well. Yeah. I'm guessing then that that wasn't something that you felt called into uh, as, a, as a young adult. What kind of aspirations did you have? As a young adult, I wanted to be a singer-songwriter. And I, I was discouraged really to, from that as a career move and encouraged into uh, getting doing something more sensible. So I, I did a, a two years of a teaching degree, um, a B.Ed. And then I took the year off to look after my mom. Um, during that time, I had a, a rethink about what I was actually doing with my life and, um, and just went back and finished a straight English degree. Um, which was, it was a combined, it was like there was child psychology and um, other elements to it, which were really interesting sociology and um, other different bits and bobs, which was really fascinating. But um, so, but, but really what I wanted to do was make music and, and perform. And so when I was at my university, they did have a film and drama department but because I'd come out of a very mainstream straight education. I didn't even know that there were courses and those kinds of things obviously didn't read the prospectus very well um also I was on a different program um and everybody thought that I was part of the film and drama department because I hung around with all of them and I was in all their productions and I was singing and so they were confused by the fact that I actually was on the B.Ed course um but but I I and I did spend quite a lot of time when I was living in London gigging and performing and recording and um and but never made enough money at it to be more than semi-professional. So, uh, so other things happened and yeah. It's interesting that, you know, you said that your coping mechanism to sort of deal with what was happening in your family was to, to maybe shut down and not, not deal with it. But then creation of, of music and, and writing songs is actually something which can be very, you know, emotionally expressive and an outlet for, for that. Yeah. Did you feel that that was maybe a, a sort of form of displacement or some way for you to sort of channel those things that you weren't necessarily yeah. addressing head on? Yeah, I really do. I do. And, and, and I think because I wasn't conscious that I was doing that. I wasn't, didn't think, oh, because my mum's ill, I'm not going to feel anything. I, I just felt like I needed to be strong and kind of cope. And, and, and as you, exactly as you say, all of my emotional energy went through songs and and also other writing and I remember and, and movement as well. I remember really clearly when my mom was um, when I was still at home at school. I would wheel my mom in her wheelchair round to have her hair done because there was a, a lady with a downstairs kind of hairdressing salon not far away from where we lived. And then I go home and I play really really loud music like Jesus Christ Superstar or you know just something really with loads of like um, feeling to it and then just dress up and dance around the house kind of crazily for a couple of hours and then put it all back away again and then go and collect my mom. Um, so I think that I think there were, I mean, in some ways, brilliant ways that I found to be able to cope with a really challenging situation because it didn't seem like there was any, because you can't change those situations. All you can do is find ways of coping with them. And so maybe that was why the creativity and the, the music came even further forward at that time.
As a new feature for this season, we're showcasing Somerset's musical talent with tracks from local acts in each podcast. Taney Lord and the Crooks are a country pop music group which gives you music for sunsets and highways from Bristol to Nashville. They've been featured on BBC Upload and their 2020 single, No God of Mine, reached number one in the iTunes UK country music charts. From the heart of the West Country with a heavy slice of Americana, this is the latest single, Bet On You. then did you come to to have uh, such a passion for the idea the concept the act of forgiveness yeah 
Uh, it's It's been an interesting thing that I have reflected on. And funnily enough, that it is related to, to the music. So, so there's a couple of things. So um, maybe 15 years, maybe just slightly less after my mum was really ill. So she was in a nursing home for the last eight years of her life. So just before she died, I did some personal development training um, called the More to Life program. And, um, and they had us think about who did we need to forgive? And there was a whole part of the afternoon was all about forgiveness. And they encouraged us to write down the names of the people that we thought we might need to forgive. And, uh, and I just thought, well, if you lower your bar, you know, probably everyone I've ever met, pretty much, you know, to all intents and purposes, you know, we have something about somebody that we could, you know, moan about. And so I started writing my list and I got to number 36 and I thought, yeah, I probably resent my mom as well. So I put her name down. And I think one of the things that felt really important about that was admitting that I resented her for being ill. Because there's one thing about coping with it and finding an emotional outlet and all those kinds of things. And there's another to, to really admit and take responsi responsibility for the fact that I did resent her for it. I wished it hadn't been the way it was. And so that was really the beginning of my fascination, I think, with forgiveness. And I watched how this particular program taught forgiveness. I trained to become one of their mentors to teach some of their courses. And then as I carried on with my personal and spiritual development, so I moved, I did, um, I gave up meat when I discovered um, the Hare Krishna book that my flatmate at the time had. And so we, we went vegetarian for a while. And, um, and then I went on retreats with the Buddhists. And then I went on silent retreats with the Sufis. And then I discovered evolutionary spirituality. And so I've been on a really long journey of discovery. And forgiveness always seemed to be a really important part of that and my fascination with it deepened because I, I would coach people from time to time to do the forgiveness practice and I would also do something called the journey which is by a woman called Brandon Bays which includes a forgiveness part and then I discovered Ken Wilber and his shadow work which is also sort of to do with forgiveness and integrating things and then Thomas Hubel and his trauma release work and Gabor Mate and his addiction work and his compassionate inquiry and synthesizing all of these things together. Probably about eight years ago, I started working on a retreat, which is a, a mind, body, spirit retreat, as in it's a detox, a physical detox. So you're juice fasting, but they, we also offer meditation and yoga and, uh, and an opportunity to do some really deep emotional release work. So whatever your most ancient hidden thing that you you think's probably okay, but mm, not really, you know, you scratch the surface and then you realize there's a lot of feelings still under there. So we work with people through that, um, through the week. So to really let go of everything that they've been holding on to. So they're doing a really deep detox on every level. And during that, those retreats, we would, there's several members of staff who do forgiveness work. And I was really curious about what actually works. How is it that we, how we really come to forgiveness? Because there's a lot of literature in the world. And, and then I started reading, what, what do other people teach about forgiveness? And there's a lot of, especially in the spiritual world, forgiveness seems to seem like it belongs to a religious uh tradition yeah i was gonna i was gonna say that because you 
deliberately look at this through through that sort of secular lens yeah. because it is often lumped in with as you say different different faiths it's a it's a key part of many um, many of the sort of central tenets of of a lot of the world's religions yeah. and and you mentioned that you've spent you know quite a bit of time looking at how how those different faiths view forgiveness and you know what are what are the sort of conditions for it and those those sorts of things yeah and it seems that there's a universal acceptance that it is a, a very worthwhile thing to do. We all should be doing it. Somehow that it happens maybe by grace, sometimes by an intervention of God, by, by faith. So to me, that leaves it very nebulous. It's a bit like saying, well, just eat healthily. I mean, there's a lot of ways you can go horribly wrong with that because your healthy might not be somebody else's healthy. It might not suit your particular physiology. You know, there's a lot of leeway. And although I understood it's important to forgive, I didn't really feel like there was much information out there on hmm. exactly what does forgiveness mean? What doesn't it mean? And how do you forgive when do you know you've done it? Yeah. And is that part of the problem then that, there isn't a single accepted viewpoint of forgiveness and, and what it actually is. Yeah, I think I think half the trouble is that there's no the the definition is is not usually the thing we think about. We think we kind of know we sort of know what you mean by forgiveness, but actually that therein lies a lot of the rubs because we haven't really thought about well what does it actually mean and culturally. I do have a bit of a bugbear with, um, in fact, I should add them to my forgiveness list. Um, BBC Radio 2 had this um, show where they there was a forgiveness part to it. And listeners would write in their story of something that they did that was, you know, a bit dodgy or unkind. And then the panel in the radio station and then the British public would vote on whether or not it was forgivable or not. And that would really have me with my head in my hands because it, there's no, it's forgiveness isn't dependent on what the act is. Forgive, forgiveness isn't it's like you can, yes, you can forgive these things, A, B, C, and D, but not, you know, F, G, Y, and Z. And, and, and so then I started getting really interested in what actually is forgiveness and why given that we know that it's something that's universally accepted in, in the spiritual traditions as an amazing, probably one of the master practices. I, uh, for me, I think next to meditation, forgiveness is the second master practice that everybody needs to be practicing. And it's, and in some ways it's this, there are some crossovers with meditation because it's about letting go. So when, when you know, in the, in the traditions you're talking about surrendering your egoic will to a higher will, that's about letting go. And the same with forgiveness is you refusing to hold on to the ill will that you're holding, your judgments, your beliefs, your wishes that things would be different. And uh, so, so my, my fascination with forgiveness became more about why don't we, why don't we forgive? And I, and funnily enough, the segue of where music and forgiveness meet for me was I, I was trying to, I'd written a little Christmas single called Merry Christmas Means I Love You. And it's under the, my band name, Golden Angel Project. And I really, I was trying to promote it. So I was trying to do like little, like as if the angelic realm was writing to humanity saying, 
this is what you need to do to make everything better on planet earth. So it was a kind of like a playful little thing. It was a promo idea. And I realized I'd written five of them about forgiveness. And then one morning I kind of woke up with this idea that based on Einstein's theory of relativity, global peace, so that's the E, equals MC squared, equals forgiveness in every heart times 7 billion. So this is my maths equivalent. And I was like, God, this is this is the answer to everything. Like if everybody, every person around the world did their forgiveness work, we would have no more war. And I, 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 you know, tested it on a few friends who just said I was completely out of my head and, you know, just keep working on the other promo ideas I'd have. But I also thought, but you can't argue with the maths of that proposition, that if we each person individually forgave everyone and everything that they needed to forgive, we would be living in a different world. And, and it was so it was those two things, seeing the phenomenal potential, even though it's visionary and idealistic or maybe just naive and all of the reasons why we don't forgive that that got me hooked. And that's what why I wrote my book. Why do people find it difficult then? If it, if it is so great, then why don't we do it? Yeah. As much as we should. Yeah. And I, th- I think if you use the analogy of, of healthy eating, it's quite a good one because most of us know that eating more vegetables and less processed food would be good for us. And, but we don't always do it. And, and some of it, the, the, the lack of healthy eating is because a lot of what we're shown in our culture is the opposite. The things that we're sold and we're, we're bless us. We're so naively gullible. You know, all you have to do is put something like on a notice board close to something or, you know, a, a particular chocolate bar or something by the counter and you want one. I mean, we're that easy. That's why all the advertising online works. We're that easy to influence. You put it in front of our eyes and we want it. And so the, one of the things I think that's hard about forgiveness is you can't see it. And that makes it, that makes it hard to do. I think there's, I mean, in my book, I write about five different obstacles, but having reflected on the, in three years since I wrote it, I think even before you get to the obstacles, forgiveness is not, it's not something that we like to admit about ourselves. You'd never put, oh yeah, I hold resentment and grudges and never let them, you know, never let anyone off the hook. You wouldn't write that on your dating profile because it's not an attractive it's not an attractive uh, quality. And so we don't like to even to admit to ourselves. So that was, that was what was significant about me admitting that I resented my mom for being ill. And funnily enough, in um, Russell Brand's book about addiction um, called um, Recovery, um, he writes about resenting his mom because she had cancer when he was seven. And he's the first person I've heard actually talk about the same thing as me to say that is a reality that we, we, you resent things that happen. Like if, if you have a family member who gets ill or who, something happens to them and that impacts on your life, that you will carry some resentment because it's, it's it, I mean, it's not, once you understand what resentment is, it's not such a big deal. It's just like saying, I just wish things were different. It's, it's ill will held over time for good reason usually. And um, so, so before you even start, we don't want to admit it. And then the other really important thing is that we don't really want to let it go. That's the 
deep, dark secret of forgiveness is that really we don't want to forgive because we think it means things like the other person will get off the hook or we'll look weak or they'll get one over on us or they won't respect us anymore. It's like not standing up for what's important to you. All of the things that we think forgiveness means that's in the way of, of it, it, resentment. There's a, a nice Brené Brown quote and she says, it may go down like a milkshake, but it burns like a battery acid. And the, the sense is that we, we feel like we're getting something out of it. The resentment feels good. And, and culturally, so many of our stories are based on resentment and retribution. Because forgiveness isn't really that kind of cool. It's not cool. It doesn't, it doesn't look cool. You can't kind of dress it up in kind of cool glasses and, you know, swagger around and kill people. Well, also, you know, you, you mentioned it's something that you can't see. Mm-hmm. And, and I wanted to explore a little bit about the, the quote that you use to, to define what forgiveness actually is, mm-hmm. which if you'll be kind enough to remind me. Yes, of course. So it's a, it's a Kay Bradford Brown quote. And he says, Kay Bradford Brown is the, one of the founders of the Mortal Life Program. And he says that forgiveness is the absolute refusal to hold ill will against someone or something for what they did or didn't do. Do you want me to say it again? Because it's quite a lot. Yeah, sure. So the absolute refusal to hold ill will against someone or something for what they did or didn't do. So what I find interesting about this, and this is probably something that you've you've spent time thinking about, that the wording on that is that it's a it's a refusal to do something. It's defined as the absence of an action Mm -hmm. rather than something that's active and to me that definition of of what forgiveness is sounds a little bit counterintuitive because there's often when you think about it there's something around it being something that is is active and you're doing something and you're you're putting energy into forgiveness rather than what this definition is which is a a refusal to to hold something so it's it's kind of a an absence of of energy yeah if that makes sense yeah really that's good that's that's a good observation yeah and i think that is why it's a powerful definition because it's it's an undoing it's something you're that you're refusing to do a bit like giving up a habit when you when you give something up and you're going around telling people yay no one can see it because you've stopped doing whatever it was. And it's it's really similar and it's it's, it's as hard. I think that's the other thing about it. It's I, I would equate forgiveness as, as, as equally as difficult as some of the things that we might have given up in the past or you know the, the habits that we despair of in ourselves. That forgiveness can can be something um, along the, the same the same quality in some ways. But also when I work one-to-one with clients, we do do something. We, we make a ritual around the letting go. And, and again, that in some ways goes back to the Catholicism because I could see in the Catholic faith, there's sacraments that, that happen during different parts of the, your life different to mark different um, important events. And, and the tradition of confession 
is, is actually incredibly healthy because you get the opportunity to say everything, to get it off your chest to a, an impartial witness who won't, doesn't judge you for it and who helps you to forgive yourself to, to a certain extent. And it's like, obviously slightly different because you've got an intermediary and there's a, you know, the, 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 the Catholic tradition around it, but the gesture of it was something that I really liked and took forward in, in when I was devising my synthesis of the other things that I'd learned that worked. One of the important things was the confessional part. But for me, the most important part of that was to acknowledge that something had happened. And again, we have a very interesting relationship culturally at the moment with victimhood. And, and in this, the sort of more new age religions, there's a sort of sense of, but you're not a victim, you're free. And, and, and what I was trying to do was make room for all of those different perspectives so that often we are victims often, especially when we're younger and something happens, we can honestly say, I was not, I was not able to change that reality because I was too young. I didn't have the power. I didn't have the say, you know, if you're sent away to boarding school or something, that might not be your choice. You are a victim, if you like, of that, those circumstances. And there's, there isn't anything wrong about that. What can happen is you can then tell yourself a victim story, or you can identify as a victim and then not create the kind of life that you want to create for yourself or make the choices that you want to make because you're believing that you can't. So that, mm. you know, that can get complicated, but um, yeah. Yeah, the, the other interesting thing I suppose that's, that's uh, related to that is within, within the definition and within that, that sort of explanation that you just gave, the, the offender is not involved in the process. There is no necessity of reconciliation a relationship doesn't have to be restored yeah uh, and i think again that's something which is maybe an assumption that people make that if you want to forgive someone then you have to sort of have some sort of showdown with them yeah yeah and interestingly i think that's one of the things that can really work for people doing the process in in the way that i recommend because you are you're allowing for that resistance to be there and you're including the fact that that you may never hear that person say the thing that you want them to say. They may never apologize. They may never take responsibility. But in the process, because it's a, a, a guided imaginary conversation, you can have that conversation. You can have it in the privacy of your own head, but out loud because I'd be coaching you through it. And 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 what happens is to our to our physiology it, because we're hearing ourselves actually say the words and hearing them and then we speak on behalf of the other person it can feel incredibly healing and and i've worked with people who aren't necessarily they're not necessarily carrying the resentment isn't they don't feel tortured by a lot of resentment but they know they have things that didn't get said before the person died either because they died and they'd had a row before they'd had the chance to reconcile or they died suddenly or maybe they took their own life. And what's wonderful about doing this particular process is that you can heal and feel like you come to a place of resolution. Because the other, the other definition of forgiveness that I use is coming to a place of peace, release and reconciliation in yourself about something. And I think, again, we think that 
if I accept something, it means I like it. And that just isn't true. We need to accept the things that we don't like. It just means, yeah, my mom did have multiple sclerosis from the time, well, actually from when I was a baby, but it got really bad by the time I was 15. That's the reality of my family. But that's it. There's no, and therefore, you know, it's just, that's how it was. I wanted to bring up something, I suppose, again, that's tangentially related to, to that thought. And that's Carl Jung. So within the sort of the school of thought, one of the central principles is the, the creation of self and the process of uh, individuation, which is, which is bringing people's unconscious and conscious and their experiences together to sort of form a cohesive identity, I suppose. And, and one of the things you said uh, earlier is that people maybe don't want to let go of, of things. And if you think of things in a kind of Jungian way, then some of those experiences where they uh, have been victims of whatever it might be are part of their identity and therefore letting go of them is letting go of a part of themselves. From my experience of working with lots of people, lots and lots of people, most of the time, the part of you that would identify with those early wounds, if you want to call them that, is... And I like Thomas Hubel's phrasing for this. He calls them very intelligent coping mechanisms. So if there's, if there's a part of you that shuts down, even like with me at 15, if there's a part of me that switches off because I don't want to feel the pain. Although I might identify as somebody who's strong, that's because it, that's an artificial something that I've taken on. It's a, it's a coping mechanism that I've developed that then as I go through my life, I discover more and more doesn't serve me. Being switched off to my feelings doesn't help me have intimate relationships. It doesn't help me sustain friendships. It doesn't make me feel connected to the world. And so then it's worth my while to, to reconsider that particular part of my character and review whether or not I want to carry on like that. And, and, and I would think you would only be able to do that kind of work with somebody else because you need to have someone else's expertise and support to help you re realize those things and to change them but I do I see people all the time when we go back to early experiences and they do they have their in fact this is the a Jungian the the phrase is active imagination process so that's what we're doing we're using active imagination and you let them re-experience well, no, they're not really re-experiencing, re but they're saying what needed to be said that didn't get said at the time, particularly as a, as a younger version of themselves. When trauma happens, you don't say, actually, mom and dad, that's not fair. I wish you wouldn't do that. You just think there's something wrong with you and, you know, and make up your own whatever coping mechanisms happen. But if you go back to that time and then you resource that younger version, then it's almost like that bit can come back online again and then they can, the, the, then there's an integration. And it's interesting that you're saying about the undoing of the ego, because I do think that that's one of the reasons why we find it so hard to forgive is that we, that somehow our ego is involved and there's a, there are spurious reasons, let's say, why you want to hold on to your resentment because it gives you a sense of power. Sometimes it gives you a sense of protection. It feels like you're protecting your heart if you, in my circumstances, resentment felt like a preference to the pain or the grief. 
And there's such a strong relationship between forgiveness and grief. And I think one of the reasons why we don't forgive is because we don't want to grieve. We don't want to admit, yes, actually that happened, that I lost that. Uh, and that, you know, to, to admit the reality of things. Part of today's culture, when you look at movements that are fighting for justice, for women, for the victim of sexual abuse, for ethnic minorities, I really dislike the term cancel culture, but it does go some way to describing how within these big conversations that we're having as a society, forgiveness isn't really top of the agenda. How much of a problem is that? And do you see a, a sort of end to to that being the the sort of objective of, of what some of these movements want to uh, to achieve? Oh, great questions. Um, one of the things recently that I've heard Charles Eisenstein saying is rather than pitting yourself against somebody else, it's really important to ask, what would it take for me to think like they do? What experiences would I have needed to have had as a child or growing up to have those beliefs or that worldview and to take those actions. And, and I really like that because that's really, that's the key to forgiveness is to be able to take the perspective of other. Um, but at the same time, what I see us as a society doing is attending to the symptoms rather than to the root cause. So for me, the most recent thing with, with how, how could we keep women safe on the streets is a much bigger conversation than whether or not we have more street lighting. It's, it's about what is our relationship with each other? You know, why, why is it that there is still such a huge amount of violence against women? And the hashtag me too thing, I was really interested about, well, it doesn't even matter if everyone is saying hashtag me too, one woman is too many. So, so it's, it's not even like a thing about see how, how big the numbers are. It's, it's, it's more about what's our attitude. And, and, and I really think that we won't make a big enough shift in how we feel about each other unless we can learn how to do our forgiveness work. I think that's partly why I'm so enthusiastic about it because it, it, not everybody's going to want to do it, but the people who do have admitted to themselves, I know that I'm carrying this secret thing in my heart. What, for example, we had a, a woman who came on the retreat and who was in her 70s and she'd been sexually abused as a, a young teenager. And she said at the end of the retreat, all of that bad feeling that I was holding in my body, it's gone. And so she'd like decades and decades of living with that tension in her body that she didn't know how to release, didn't know she could release and probably wasn't even aware consciously that it was in there, that she was able to release it by doing the forgiveness work. And I think we, like, we've got such a big buildup culturally and, and it seems to be getting worse with the, with the polarization of you know, canceling some people rather than hearing well, what is the other side and what can I learn and having that humility you know, about a beginner's mind, like what is it that we don't know? How can we discover 
a, a place of understanding. And, and another thing that Charles Eisenstein says, which I really like, is about um, what are the common, where's the common ground? Where are the questions that neither side is asking? And where, where are we the same? What is it that we both, both sides want? And, and to me, that's, that's, we need to be asking those questions. And, and back to my, you know, um, global peace equals forgiveness in every heart times 7 billion, is I, I really do feel if we each do our forgiveness work, that that frees our hearts so that we can then get on with doing the other things that need to be done. Otherwise, the ego just gets so fascinated with itself that it's, it's almost like it, it keeps feeding on its own mess, really. And we never, we never make a leap out of that fascination. Your forgiveness equation, um, and I hope you'll allow me to simplify it uh, as such, um, is something which reminds me of another philosophical challenge or thought experiment, you, which you may know of. Yeah. It, essentially, it's given a set of circumstances, are you willing to hold your nerve and not do something um, based on the fact that someone else is being asked the same question and if they aren't answer the same as you or different to you that affects how you end up out of that that situation i've really i've massacred what the prisoner's dilemma is uh <laughs> in my explanation of it but it also it, it also feels a little bit like you know with with such animosity be it kind of between individuals groups nations even that someone has to blink someone has to make the first move and in in a world where every mistake is shamed on social media and again like the idea of forgiveness is not not kind of front of mind it's it's mostly like okay who's who's going to win this you know in in the the sort of the public or or media trial of for example, uh, you know, Prince Harry and Meghan Markle, there's no discussion about any forgiveness. It's, it's who is right here and who is going to win and who is going to win the court of public opinion and the court of the media. So to the point about the prisoner's dilemma, it's like, who is going to blink first? Yeah, great question. And funnily enough, I, I always have this idea that it's the sort of thing that needs to happen all at the same time. I don't know if you've ever done those group things where everybody's sitting in a or standing in a circle and if you all get close together like in the old days you could sit down on the person behind you's knees and then you can all sit down but you need to all do it at the same time and do it together because if one person doesn't do it then it breaks the circle and everyone falls over uh, but also i think my abiding question to the both sides of who's going to win the court blah 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 is how is your hate helping because most of the time it isn't it just makes you it feeds your self-righteousness and we do love to be right well the ego loves to be right we really like to have that sense of well this is certain in a, especially in an increasingly uncertain world we want to feel like there's there is certainty that we well at least this is true this is a value i can hold on to and that's what it feels like people are defending value sets and but to me, we're still moving deck chairs around on the on the Titanic. We're not we're not looking at the fundamental paradigms that hold all of that in place. And again, back to Charles is what's the common ground like with the with the Meghan Markle thing? 
you know, what is it that both sides are wanting? And it sounds like actually, God bless him, Harry needs to do some forgiveness work on his dad and his dad needs to do some forgiveness work on him. So I'm available if they want to get in contact. Uh, <laughs> I'm not sure the listeners, but <laughs> they, they may be, you may be surprised. Though. So, yeah, but, but it's, but it's that. And, and it's really funny because I, I have an eye obviously for that and you can see it everywhere. I mean, if you think about it, resentment, that's Megan, Harry, resentment, Charles, resentment, Oprah, resentment, um, you know, like, and it, when you start looking, all you see in the world is resentment resentment everywhere we resent the people who don't think like we do we resent the people who who do think like we do but you know for other things like not putting the toothpaste on you know toothpaste cap back on the toothpaste you know like for little things and big things we we resent all huge huge things and we resent tiny things and in fact again there was a, an article i was listening to on on the radio and it was can you forgive dominic cummings and instantly you get everybody polarized and, it, and it's like that is what's being fed and that is what's being fed to us in our culture, that that's the correct thing. Like, just don't let anyone get away with everything, you know, anything. You know, if you if you call me the wrong name or, you know, there's this sort of oversensitivity to to how right I am and how you should be behaving as opposed to a, a, a climate of compassion and understanding and how can we help each other to realize our true potential? That never seems to come up. You mentioned uh, the retreats and I, I feel like as a county, Somerset, there is quite a lot of um, wellness, spiritual exploration that, that goes on. Why do you think that is? Is that unique to, to the area around here? I don't know. I, I know lots of people who live here who think there's something very special about this area, even though it's often the place people drive through in order to get a bit further west. But there are some people who do feel like the land itself has some kind of special property and it's a special place. It is a special place of healing, particularly Glastonbury and, and the places where there are standing stones. And that's all sort of that, that sense of something has been important that's been done here. Um, but I, I, I would only speculate beyond that. I don't know. Do you, do you have any favourite locations in the county where, where you go if you want some clarity or, or the need to reflect? There, you know, there's a couple of places that I really love. And one is Chalicewell Gardens. I really do feel like that is a very special place. It has a special feel to it. And... Uh, and you know maybe the legends are true but it, it there's something very lovely about that place that you can almost sense just even just going have you been there as you go i have not actually no. oh you should, it's, it's a wonderful place and, and you go through an arbor on, on the way up and it's like a slight incline and there's something just walking through that archway that it's almost like moving into another world and and the waters there are supposed to be healing and there's there's a lot of history there as well and very very old trees and a, and a tree that was supposed to have come um from the cross no from the um crown of thorns that christ wore uh brought by joseph Ar of arimathea i don't know if that's true but that's you know that's the legend and the isle of avalon is a very special place um and then the other place that I really love is Stourhead, the Stourhead Valley all around there. It's very beautiful. 
and uh, and and even Stourhead itself, the gardens, because they're so whoever it was who had that vision of how things might be in the future. I I, I always feel that that's an extraordinary skill. Uh, I'm not a gardener, so I don't have any clue at all about how you would envision something that's going to keep evolving over hundreds of years. Um, and it's a very beautiful place. Before we go, where can people find out more about the work that you're doing, about uh, the thinking you're doing, the writing, uh, all of that kind of stuff? The best place is my website, which is forgivenessmadeeasy.co.uk. And I, I do occasionally blog. And, uh, and as I said, doing a few more podcasts and talking to anybody who'll talk to me about forgiveness. And you, you can tell that... that um, that it, it, it culturally it's it's a bit of a an underground movement but i am i am really hoping that it could become something that we do especially as as mental health becomes more prominent and people are thinking more about their mental and emotional health because forgiveness is a really important skill that you can learn that's a lifelong skill and my my next book will be um about five different practices including obviously including forgiveness can't not write about forgiveness again but um yeah so it'll be it'd be five essential practices well if you, if you label forgiveness as an act of self-care um you know everyone will want to be doing it yeah that's a real that's <laughs> a really good point yeah and and the truth of it is is it is primarily for you you are the primary beneficiary of your forgiveness for sure but it just also help, helps to change the world and and weirdly changes the dynamic between the person that you've forgiven and that doesn't necessarily mean that you have to reconcile but if you are in relationship with that person that can happen and it is quite spooky I quite like that side of it where I had a a client a little while ago and we did some forgiveness work on her mother and she came up to me a couple of days later at the retreat and said you'll never guess what my mum phoned me and told me she loved me and she has never done that before (laughs) so miracles happen. Barbara, thank you so much for your time. It's been really fascinating talking to you. You've been a great guest. Thank you very much. It's been a real pleasure. Thanks, Lewis. Thank you for listening to this episode of Somerset Stories. If you liked it, you can subscribe on Apple, Spotify, Google, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you'd like to get in touch, you can find us on social media at Somerset Stories or email hello at somersetstories.com. Music on all Somerset Stories productions is created by Jazar. You can be found at betterwithmusic.com. See you next time.